You know when you're doing a song about a small town. Try Lambert sniffing salts today. You get to start it with a cliche, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, time moves a little slower here. The pain feels cause the summer's here, it's Lucifer. And we're new and near, nowhere you would know of. Locus here, bright, they show up just to show off. For men, take a load off, just to watch the day go by. Philosophizing with the friends like they Plato. They prophesied on the bench by the main road. All right. Welcome to episode 153 of Tell Me Where to Turn. We had actually decided to end the podcast after the Die Hard review. <laughs> and then The Rock decided to buy the XFL England, was like, give me a microphone, I'm back. It's been, here we are. It's been a uh, pretty big, pretty eventful last week, but this is a hell of a day. <laughs> Had a little appointment this this morning, a little blood work done, and I'm uh, driving back to the house. Get get home, check the phone for Twitter because I I got a couple of uh, mentions about something about the Renegades, and I'm like, what is going on? I don't I don't, I don't get it. And so I pull up Twitter and just search XFL, and I see the headline <laughs> that The Rock <laughs> and the millions. <laughs> Had purchased the XFL, and I thought it was—I thought it was a fake story at first, because it was—it was like a Bleacher Report post, and I looked at it to make sure they didn't change like one of the letters, where it was like the bleak bleaker report or something like that. And then when I realized it was true, just just a feeling of pure joy that I can't really describe. Is it safe to say that it's good? You got this news after the blood work or they wouldn't have been able they would have had to go to a different body part to draw the blood because all the blood was one spot my yeah my heart rate would have been like 180 and blood pressures over 200 i mean it was uh this was the reality is what i would have joked about what was going to happen like really I thought somebody was going to buy it just to maybe have the rights in case one day they might want to put a league together but it would just be a group of white guys we never heard of and whatever it's just some investment firm has bought the rights to the league but no our lord Dwayne the Rock Johnson <laughs> owns the XFL this this literally could not be any better oh Indeed. Well, you can you can find me on Twitter at Tommy2 underscore zero, and you are listening to Tell Me Where to Turn, which can be found at Where to Turn Pod. Uh, you can find me at Glenn3 underscore 11, and in my backyard, you can find a new fence. <laughs> oh, no. We did it. Uh, <laughs> uh, did it. Well, first, this is at Point Break underscore Dave on Twitter. Was the fence completed today? Because, boy, what a merging of great events that would be. So the uh, fence itself was completed last Friday, and we've got another part of the project that still needs to be done. But, um, yeah, it was a bit of an ordeal. Um, The company that we ended up going with kind of ended up being a bad decision, not because their uh, crew... And contractors do a a bad job because they're doing phenomenal. But their plan seems to be to put all kinds of uh, 
plans and estimates and quotes together and then have the the fence crew show up on the date of installation and walk into your backyard and be like so i hear i'm putting up a fence for you today so what's the plan (laughs) and like that was the extent of their knowledge just to better level set here did he say use the word amigo at any point when he was asking you what the plan was not to me, but I'm sure I'm sure it was used throughout the day a number of times. But it very uh parts of it have been very frustrating. I'm sorry, I'm eating a pop tart while I'm pop podcasting. You're pop casting? Yeah. But like even we're putting in a gate that a sliding gate in front of the driveway. And so these guys show up today to do that and we're asking them just a couple questions you know making sure that they've got everything squared away as to what they want to do and the guy looks at me he's like man i can do whatever you need but i just found out about this job two hours ago <laughs> i'm like how is that possible so have you confronted the owner about said uh the fact that he went by a home depot and found a few guys standing on the corner looking for work and sent them to your house uh, we've had some discussions, but th- but that's the thing is the. Did you ask him if the workers had been drug tested and background checked? <laughs> I don't. As long as they can install everything appropriately, if they were doing crystal meth in my driveway, I don't. I don't care. <laughs> oh goodness! Well, we know you don't care. You went for two years without a fence. Uh, it wasn't two it, years. It does feel like it does feel like for the amount of money that you're investing in this, I would have. I would have hoped that there would have been maybe a pre-planning meeting that took place at some point. Well, you would think so. Uh, we were just kind of taken aback when they showed up last Monday. Or, yeah, I was the only one out there at the time. And, and the guy was basically like, so do you have the, the plans so I can look at them? And I just had this blank look on my face <laughs> like, is this a joke? Is this? Are you going to tell me The Rock is going to buy the XFL? <laughs> Not that we're doing a home repair podcast, but I do remember several homes ago, I've owned many, calling the home warranty company to send out a plumber, and the guy showed up in a Geo Metro, and his first question to me was, hey, so do you have any tools I can use? (laughs) Boy, that's the home warranty type of uh, worker you get. Yeah. Apparently, he'd run into some trouble with his van, and all his tools were also in the van. So I gotta before we get to the main event, I gotta give you guys a quick story. So I'm sure both of you and we've exchanged texts, so I know this is true. We're like me, very excited about sports restarting. Yes, yeah, so, I'm in favor of sports. Few few nights ago, had uh, everything was looking good. Had several several game bets going. Had you know. About 20 to 30 DraftKings lineups. I'd made myself a nice Manhattan. I was laying on the couch. I had the flipping between a few games. You know, I got the, the phone down in my lap, checking the updated DraftKings. Like, perfect, perfect evening for a point break, Dave. And then as I'm laying there on the couch, you know, looking at my phone, I catch the glimpse of something that has fallen from the ceiling and landed on me. Not heavy, just a little plunk. And I look down at my chest and I see 
An effing scorpion. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) On my chest. I feel like the Lord may have been trying to tell you something about your lifestyle. That you should rent The Scorpion King starring Dwayne (laughs) The Rock Johnson. So did you panic or did you play it cool like, say, John McClane would have played it? It was actually... Really funny because like I, I didn't make any like noise, no like you know, anything. So I grabbed my phone and kind of flicked it off my chest onto the floor, and then I was going to step on it. And like John McClane in the first movie, I realized I didn't have shoes on. <laughs> so I went and grabbed some shoes, but it was a very like flicked it and then a very like odd jump up. <laughs> And my wife was in the kitchen. She's like, what's going on in there? He, I was like, man. You've got like thousands of dollars wagered and you're holding an alcoholic beverage just kind of <laughs> waving everywhere. Have you ever been stung by one of those things? I have not. Not not pleasant. It's not great. I would say See, more intense you, than the wasp. Wow. So have you called an exterminator? No, what's funny is I, I, when we moved in, and this was, we actually, a couple days ago was our one year in Austin, so um, we saw a few, called an exterminator, they did all their stuff, they dusted the attic, they did some, st- uh, you know, spray and all that, and then we were good, and then uh, maybe a month or two ago, started seeing saw like two more and called them back out and this was i don't know if i even mentioned this this was the i tipped like the technician that came out and i was like hey give me the good service give me the the a plus and i thought we were good but apparently they uh yeah except for the one that just jumped out of the ceiling onto your lap apparently they they uh will crawl around ac vents and there's a vent up there and it fell from the vent so but now there's like a little mesh grate you can put up underneath so it's invisible so if they're ever in there they can't actually come through the grate so we have those now so do you think if uh tommy had been in his whatever level of his home in tennessee watching tv (laughs) and a scorpion fell on his chest do you think he would have sold the house and moved out or immediately immediately gone to the er Both. <laughs> he would have been listing it on Realtor.com as he was driving himself to the ER after not even being stung. After just, like, the sheer terror. There's a lot of those out in Wise County. I've uh, You learn pretty quickly when you're staying or living out there that probably not to lay on the floor while you're watching TV because you, you have some visitors every now and then. Right, well, enough of this pleasantries. We've got serious business to attend to tonight. The Movie Review Podcast is up and running again. And following in the footsteps of our award-winning episode 152, (laughs) we're going to take a look at 1990s Die Hard 2. Die Harder. (laughs) It's crazy. Great naming. They get right to it. So this film, again, set 
in the Christmas season was actually <coughs> released on July 4th. Yeah. And uh, I don't think anything screams America more than this movie. No. <laughs> and I made a note of that, that technically it's a futuristic film. Because it was taking place five and a half months after its release date. Uh, interesting. Oh, yes. Very interesting. The... Uh, Critical reception for the movie was mixed, but it did very well in the box office. It only had a bu- estimated budget of sixty-two to seventy million, and in its worldwide release, it earned over two hundred and forty million. And I'm not good at math, but that feels like uh, everybody's probably pretty happy with how things are going. Yeah, one is more than when the you other. Forex your investment. I can tell you. Uh one household that contributed to that box office total <laughs> and that was the that was the household of the awesome dong because we <laughs> we definitely went to see this movie at the theater yeah so glenn you <clears throat> told us this about the the first die hard do you have any notes on this one was it the same as your fence company and they just showed up and they're like are are we shooting a movie <laughs> does anyone have a script <laughs> maybe they didn't I look for a little bit of that today. They didn't have near as many problems with the second one because everybody wanted the second one. I mean, it was just two years later from the first one. Um, they based the screenplay off of another novel, not by the same guy that wrote the first one. Uh, oh, that they based the first one off of two totally different authors, totally different. And the novel this was based on was... A guy who I think was a policeman is at an airport. Terrorists take over the airport, and the whole thing is his wife is in a plane that's circling, and they have less than an hour's worth of fuel. So he's got to save the day. So she's got time to land. That was the the base. The, that was what the book was written about, and then they built the story out from there. The only interesting production note that I was able to find is they did apparently pilot some innovative filmmaking for the final stunt in the movie where they were doing some composite work with live action and some still shots and different things to uh, to get to that big finale scene, which we're going to talk to in great detail. But I, I definitely noticed with both of these movies, I think CGI has kind of ruined movies to an extent because you can definitely tell when they have the real car crashes in the real impacts and they just they just don't do that anymore and everything's just too over the top so i i appreciate the the more raw style of these movies when they didn't have uh technology to do the work for them so they just had to go out and smash two cars together boy in this movie this movie gets right to it like i i watched on uh just pulled it up on hbo max and i haven't seen this probably 25 years especially beginning to end. I'm sure I've seen a piece of it here and there. But like, there's not like this long lead-in, let's show the cast, let's have some scenic views of where we're at. I mean, it like, Die Hard 2 is on the screen, and then we're immediately in the story, like just like yes. that. Yeah, and I believe the filmmakers took Point Break Dave's advice because essentially in the very first scene of the movie as McLean's car is being towed from the airport, they tell you every pertinent fact you need to know about what happened between this movie and that movie without being as obvious as they were in the first one. 
Yeah. As he's arguing with the guy, he mentions he's an L.A. cop. So I'm like, okay, well, he moved to L.A. to be with his wife. He mentioned his wife was flying in. So I'm like, well, hey, that's good. They mentioned they were in Washington, D.C. So we set this, this, this scene for where they are. And it was that's all, all we needed to know. It was all done very naturally. It wasn't like the tow truck driver as he's hooking up the car. It's like, hey, I want to ask you 10 questions really personal about your marriage to set the story real quick. <laughs> Yeah, it, it all flowed very natural. Uh, it was very funny that the cop was having none of his trying to talk out of the ticket, which we'll get more into later. And then McLean walks into what has to be the most crowded airport of all time of people not going on flights. <laughs> we are pre-security here. And there are 16,000 people jammed into the concourse of this airport. I noticed, I don't know how many extras they must have paid to be in this movie. They, they probably spent s- like 60 of the $70 million budget just paying minimum wage to all the extras they used in this movie. And it was also, because it's, it's Christmas Eve, correct? Yeah, Christmas correct. Eve. So, everyone, yeah, like you said, there's way too many people just hanging out before security. And there's also the weird thing where later in the movie when all the the board changes to show all the flights are delayed then they all just lose their minds it's like you've been hanging out here for six hours like yeah but that was when we get to that part that was uh something else triggered that triggered the panic it wasn't just the delays or cancellations so again as the as the filmmakers are doing a great job of giving us detail without beating us over the head there's a tv that's playing and we learned that the deposed general of the province of Valverde, which apparently is where former Astros closer Jose Valverde is from. <laughs> I believe he was also a Marlin. I think had that's a, right. Had a, had a swim through Detroit as well, if I'm not mistaken. Kind of, kind of grasping at straws here. <laughs> that uh, he, has, he has been captured and is being flown uh he's been taken into custody and flown into washington dc so i can assume that the thousands and thousands of people milling about the airport are very excited to know that a deposed leader of a fictional country is on their way there why would they be bringing him there general ramon esperanza is is joining dc he's taking his talents to dc (laughs) just seems weird that they'd be bringing him to like a major commercial airport like not a yeah, with, not yes. like a b- with, military base or something with lots of media coverage <clears throat> and, oh, yeah. and f- flight plan disclose there's we'll a cutaway <laughs> some more odd things about his travel <laughs> there's a cutaway here that made me almost wonder what if i was being pranked <laughs> we have a naked guy doing tai chi Okay. And they do a great job here because there's several times when you're like the camera's panning down and you're like okay <laughs> We're gonna get to we're gonna get to see the thermos here. <laughs> he, he was he was also not wearing shoes. It True, it's common in Die Hard movies. He wasn't wearing anything, and I yeah Tai Chi because I wrote down yoga, but I was like I'm not I'm not a master of these arts. No, this was Tai Chi, and then he does this crazy move at the end where he spins around like he's shooting a gun, but he just has the remote and he turns off the TV. Yes. No, so I, if you're trying to establish this guy as like a very terrifying villain, I'm I'm fifty fifty. I'm gonna need to see what's below the belt before I decide. <laughs> well, 
how respected <laughs> I, he should be. I also, you know, as we mentioned, Tommy and I are seeing this movie <clears throat> for the first time. So he's doing his Tai Chi fully nude, right? He's watching doing the, the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> he's watching the news about the, you know, deposed uh, or extradited former dictator. And you're sitting there and like, all right, he's obviously a bad guy. And the fact that he's just completely nude doing this routine, like, he's going to be like a weird, like, you know, somebody that after they kill a guy bites off their nose. Like, he's going to be a really weird bad guy. And he's not at all. Like, he's like, he's he's like a businessman gone rogue is all. Exactly. Like, throw a, throw a tattoo on this guy or something. <laughs> Like, he's just squeaky clean. But yeah, you see this opening scene, you're like, alright, he's gonna be into some weird, weird stuff. And then he's just like, he's just like a mercenary, he's like a paid mercenary. Well, he is apparently staying at the same hotel where the mercenaries have checked out an entire floor. They must have got like a block of rooms for it to save (laughs) on the rate. And they have this highly coordinated exit where they all leave their rooms at the same time, and they all have a package under their arms, a Christmas present under their arms, and I'm thinking like, there's a dance number that's about to break out. <laughs> the other thing I noted about the cadre of villains, they went with the multiracial villain uh, villains again. Yes. Every every race and creed well represented. Yeah, they had the community college cover. They were they were all good, and they drive to. They're gonna they're gonna go set up shop now. At a church. Yeah, well, they've got a plan. They're executing a plan. And I I will say off the top, and I will completely, I will freely admit this. They have a better plan than the villains in the first one, for sure. They're they're definitely more prepared. Uh, They had to coordinate a whole lot more. They weren't writing it on the fly (laughs) like they were in the first one. Um, Yeah, so, so villains... As a whole, better in this movie than in the first one. Completely agree. So now we go back to the airport is the next thing I have in my notes. McLean's hanging out. His car got towed, by the way. So yeah, his car's <laughs> gone. He's, he's on to plan B there. He's hanging out, and being the great cop that he is, he notices a couple people acting kind of shifty. And he... Well, first he goes and tries to alert the police among the 60,000 in the airport terminal, but it's the guy that towed his car, so he <laughs> kind of strikes out there. Well, and did you notice, too, that they were they were at the bar ordering a scotch? Oh, yeah. While they're no. on the clock? <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot of things these cops did not do well. So he follows them. He gets back to the employees' kind of part of the airport where it's like conveyor belts of baggage. And I, I have a lot of questions about this area of the airport where they were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have... Why was there steam blowing? <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of questions even just getting to this point because I think one of the criticisms of these movies as they progressed was in the first one, he's a cop. He's kind of a regular guy who does more of a her, super heroic thing as these move they make more of them he becomes more of just like this 
super heroic figure at all times who can just do and notice anything. Yes. And he just happens to... Coincidentally, he also bumps into Tai Chi guy just walking through the airport, which yes. all they do is just kind of stare at each other, and he says he looks familiar. He does. But he's he's picking up on these weird clues. He's, he's looking yeah, across he's, the whole airport, and he's like, those two guys, what's their deal? <laughs> he's got a highly tuned sense for villainy after the... Uh, what was it? Nakamoto? Nakatomi. Nakatomi. <clears throat> Nakatomi, yeah. After the Nakatomi incident. And not just like, man, those guys are weird, but to the point where he gets a, a airport employee to open the door so he can follow him and then tells him, go get the cops. Like, he already knows things are he knows bad. something's off. He does something that's kind of smart, <clears throat> I guess. I mean, I don't think you ever expect people to open fire on you, but he approaches the bad guys. They're up to hood rat stuff back there. He can tell. They're working on some kind of box or something in there, and he clashes his police Whoa. badge. <laughs> Both of them? I didn't think you were going to let that one slide, <laughs> as it were. And he says, uh, he says, hey, I need to see some ID. And, I mean, as soon as he gets the word D out, there's, they're shooting at him. I mean, it's on yes. immediately. And, interesting thing, super crowded terminal of the airport, Apparently no one else works back here because yeah. there's no one else back there when there's a barrage no. of gunfire. I thought that if there's too. there's one theme throughout this movie, it's that you can discharge a firearm at any time and nobody will hear it. Yeah, I In thought fact, you, could, you could just squeeze off like 100 rounds and nobody's going to hear it. I thought that too, that it was a good thing that RFK Stadium had filtered out into the rest of the hotel, <laughs> I mean the airport, so that there was enough noise out there that you couldn't hear this raging gunfight. So, during the gunfight, McLean loses his gun because one of the bad guys shoots a suitcase that's above him, and it knocks the gun. And this is the first part that made me laugh, was his gun falls on the conveyor belt, which, you know, essentially is going to render him, you know, without a firearm. But it's... Those conveyor belts don't move that fast. So you're kind of seeing it later, you're like... Well, just reach, just grab it. It's like right, yeah. It's right there. They don't have the thing turned up to eleven. Did you guys notice that at one point during the fight, a uh, a golf bag just hanging out with like no protection, the yes. just loose. Was, like I want to talk to that. I want to. I want to do a movie about that guy. The guy who thinks he's just going to send his golf clubs through the airport without even putting them in a case. <laughs> like but, years later, the real villain here. Years later, he started a fence company. <laughs> Look, I just heard I was going on this trip two hours ago. I didn't have time. I don't yeah, I found you. that very funny. Like, in case one of the uh, baggage claim guys just needs to get a nine iron real quick, it's just right there. So, yeah. so ultimately, there's two guys. There's two guys back there. One of them is a natural athlete that probably grew up knowing how to fight, and the other's not. And the guy that was the natural athlete, he puts up a pretty good fight uh, with McLean. The other guy, um, oh, and by the way, so we get to this death scene of the other guy. What was that? Do they really have a thing that just squishes suitcases? <laughs> no. Is that a real thing? There's no way. <laughs> so, yeah, like for those that haven't seen the movie, there's all these suitcases on a conveyor belt. And then at one point, there's just a roller that apparently pushes 
down with enough force to kill a human being. But it it's also like something you'd see at a junkyard. Yes, it, exactly. It also seemed in like it electrocuted him at the same time. <laughs> there was a lot. There were sparks everywhere, and he was screaming. I don't. I don't know. He he died though. He did right. die. So so basically, right after this guy's dead, the other guy escapes, and finally, here comes airport security. But they grab John McClane. Of course they do. And conveniently, he's now lost his wallet and his badge during the scuffle, so he has no way to prove that he's not a not the bad guy. So I'm like, great, we're ar- we're already here, and this is what we're gonna do. They do away with but, that pretty quickly, though. Yes, they do, and thank thankfully, because I I I I need McClane unencumbered yes. in this film. There was a quick cutaway to the uh, plane. Yeah, who else is on the wife's plane? <laughs> so we had an interesting cameo on the plane. It's the reporter that uh, basically invaded their privacy in Die Hard 1. Yes, the went to the Die kid's Hard. house, or the house, yeah. to talk to the kids. And he's on the plane um, having a fit because he got, I guess, kicked out of first class, or they oversold first class, so he's having to come back to steerage. Yes, and apparently since... Uh, the incident in Die Hard 1, his entire career has been doing hit pieces on the airline industry. <laughs> because, boy, do they hate him. Yeah. Well, apparently he was hosting some sort of inside edition, a current affair type tabloid show of the day was the, was the story. But he's, I mean... Probably a little more than a cameo. He's got a pretty significant role here. No, I mean, Absolutely. at the time, I thought it was going to be a cameo, but no, he, he ends up playing a pretty pivotal role in the movie. It turns out that John McClane's wife has a restraint, or he has a restraining order against her for yeah, assaulting for the, him. Yes, for the assault that she levied upon him in the closing minutes of the original Die Hard. There's a cutaway to the church. The bad guys have somehow, despite only having about 14 of them, set up the most advanced mission control, more advanced than the control tower at Dulles. Yes. With just a few suitcases worth of equipment, they've now they've now taken over the entire church. Did you see how much Tai Chi that guy was doing? <laughs> efficiency is part of the, the science there. No, and when they... Next airport they build, and, you know, the people are bidding out the cost and time frame of setting up the tower, someone needs to be like, hey... Colonel Stewart and six guys set one up in 12 minutes in an old church. So get it together. So then, if the roller and the church and everything else wasn't enough plot problems, here's my first big plot problem of the movie. We get... McLean gets detained. They figure out he's legit, so they take him to meet with Chief Lorenzo, who, underrated great character in this movie, just (laughs) plays the heel to perfection. The airport security station is bigger and with more uniformed cops than I think the NYPD has. There is no way that can be for real, is it? I mean, there's, there's levels of offices, there's administrative staff. I mean, th- this, thing, this thing is not like a rinky-dink security force. Th- this, is, this is the equivalent of a medium-sized city's security force at this airport. Yes, and despite having all that manpower for just security of the airport, they don't want to do anything. <laughs> no, they, they need to go back and order some more scotches at the 
airport bar apparently. Well, don't they have don't they have their own SWAT team? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes. But, because ultimately that's how the, you know they set up the bad guys set up shop at the church and then they were hiding some kind of device or something back in the baggage area to to take over the controls at the airport more or less. <clears throat> Yes, Th- that, that's that's more or less their mission. We also it, had a, it may be more correct to say they had a SWAT team. We'll get to that. <laughs> oh yeah, but but the, the, it's another part of the foresight of the plan was that they take over the airport and then they know that um, that they're going to send a team to this certain area, and they assume that it's going to be the best guys they have. So this is all set up from the beginning that they're going to ambush their best unit and take them out at the very beginning, making it very difficult for their plan to fail from that point on. Yes. They are getting the body of the guy that got squished out of the airport, despite the fact that they have a 3,000-member security force. (laughs) The best plan they could come up with is just to wheel the body right through the main part of the airport. It with no the security, fact that we find out later in the movie there are tunnels connecting every facet of this airport. No, they're going to wheel the body right through the main part of the airport. And there's no, you know, uniformed officers with it. It's just the two coroners, because McLean's able to just stop them by flashing the badge. And hey, I'm just going to get some fingerprints. <laughs> don't don't mind me. Yeah, and it's hilarious because then when he like he just leaves the hand just sticking up <laughs> yeah. <out> the back. <laughs> it's amazing. And then he had yeah. to go he had to go use the fax machine, which they had led up yes. to that before that he was It hurts. It was the nineties and he was fearful of technology. And That's there's right, no well. way a fax machine in the nineteen ninety has the resolution to accurately identify a fingerprint. Well guys, who exactly did we send this fax to? Good old Officer uh, Powell. Is it Powell? Yeah. Yeah. Twinkie in hand. <laughs> Did you guys notice also that the lady that was working at Hertz was, I mean, she was just ready to, like, right there oh, on the counter yeah. with McLean. Like, yeah. I mean, no, like. She was ready. When he, uh, when McLean befriends the janitor later, you know that guy was right behind the desk with a mop. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen this movie before. <laughs> The uh, yeah, so Powell Powell does have a cameo. He uh, sends he sends the facts. Um, you know there there's some things happening between, but skipping skipping ahead, what he McLean finds out is like this this is not a uh, I think as Lorenzo said like a, a you know thug or somebody trying to steal luggage. This guy is ex special forces, and even more fascinating, had been declared legally dead years ago. Which means he's completely off the grid, and uh, and that's when McLean knows that they have they have a big problem. So a couple things that are uh, going uh, taking on um, are taking place in the meantime. The snowstorms coming in, and there was in the very beginning there was uh, when the bad guys were congregating at the airport, they seemed very excited the, uh, at the prospect that there was some weather moving in. Like, they weren't sure, and the, the seeing the weather report kind of confirmed, like, hey, this is going to get bad, and they, they seemed to feel like that was going to aid whatever plan they had worked out. The uh, other um, other thing I had couldn't let slide by, um, 
McLean does make a joke with the Hertz lady. Oh yeah. He says, uh, just the facts, ma'am. Just the oh, facts. Yeah. Just the facts. I thought, I thought the uh the parts that were intended to be humorous fell a little more flat in this movie. I thought they worked in the first one. They didn't work so well in this one. It wasn't t- well, not terrible, but I'm giving the first I'll, movie the edge. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with the the humor wasn't quite as good as the first one. So, I believe this is the part where McLean now he has his proof that yes. he was right. He storms in. Uh, and is this where they're in the tower? I think. Yes, and he has stormed the tower, and, and a reporter comes with him, and they are both essentially told to leave. But but my first question is, so the, the staff they're there, the security's up there. McLean forces his way. Now there's just a random reporter. Do they have security for this <laughs> very exclusive control tower at this gigantic airport? Yes, very close to the White House. <laughs> former, no, former presidential candidate Fred Thompson also running the uh, running point in the uh, control tower. Excited is, to see that. Yeah, that's correct. The, the late Fred Thompson. I believe I voted for him in a primary one time, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yes. Very on board with his uh, with his platform. I think he lost. Uh, I think he did not make it out of the uh, out of the top five for that one. Six Probably. foot six foot six. Hmm. Still is. It's just kind of in the. It's kind of underground now. Another just random thought I jotted down. So this guy that they've identified by his fingerprints, special forces, faked his own death, hired mercenary. Do you think he ever saw himself dying because of a luggage roller? (laughs) When they were faking his death two years ago, he was like, this is perfect. This will buy me plenty of cover to get killed by the luggage roller. So this is also where I like to point out. So... He storms the tower, tells them all, uh, I forget the character's name, but the guy that's running the tower seems to somewhat buy into McLean a little bit. Like he's at least, you know, he's more on board than the uh, police chief. Yet, still, they're like, hey, you know what? We have a really odd special forces guy that everyone thinks is dead. We have this former dictator that's getting flown to this airport. We could call, you know, CIA, Homeland Security. Nah, we'll let the airport SWAT team handle this. No reason to let anyone else know. Chief Lorenzo's got this. And they kick McLean and the uh, reporter out. Yeah, so while they're in the tower, um, or as we continue in the tower scene... All the runway lights go off. And yes, the villains are once again chainsawing through wires. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that continuity. From and once again, yeah, I did notice that. And, and by the, God, they killed uh, the airport. Lead villain does call the tower on a secure FAA line, which really freaks out Fred Thompson because nobody's supposed to have that line. Um, and they start to lay out their demands. They want to let Esperanza's plane land. They want a new plane. Um, 
they they essentially start to lay the framework for what the uh, what the what the terrorist activity is going to be. While uh, McLean's been tossed out of the tower uh, control tower by Chief Lorenzo with the reporter, again a th- throwback to uh, the original Die Hard, he's climbing out the top of the la- uh, elevator before it, it uh, reaches the the ground floor, so that he's he's once again loose. Okay, I didn't notice that, but okay. Yeah, and uh, and then the uh, the only uh, African American guy in the tower, he has an idea for how to fix this thing. Now, unfortunately, his idea is going to get the entire SWAT team killed <laughs> and play directly into the villain's hands because they saw this play coming a mile away. Yeah, and that's. Uh... But he does have an idea. And the idea is they have to get to a, uh, a communications area in a part of the airport that's under construction. And they can tap into that and then use that to communicate with the planes because the bad guys have ceased all their ability to communicate with the, uh, with the planes. So another now, correlation to the first movie is we have several areas under construction where we will have <laughs> fights and gunfights. Yes. yes. So McLean's sneaking around and... This is where he happens upon the janitor, who, like all janitors of airports, has full blueprints and schematics to the entire (laughs) airport, all nicely organized. He also may be living in the basement. (laughs) His name was Marvin, by the way. Marvin. Marvin's a hero. Marvin comes up. But yeah, wasn't that weird, like... McLean's like, hey, I need to get here. He's like, well, <laughs> I was the architect for this airport, basically. <laughs> yes, let me pull out my blueprints of the airport. The bad guys are kind of waiting in the area where they're going, and they're all disguised as painters. Felt like a little bit of an unnecessary detail, but as Glenn mentioned, they were prepared. You know they who that, uh, that first guy that turned around was, don't you? There was a bad no. guy? Is uh. Terminator 2. Oh, that's right. It was. I did, I did note that. Are but you going to tell me you've never seen Terminator 2 now? I, I've never seen Terminator 1. Or two. Well, well, we'll get through the diehards and it's on to the Terminators. <laughs> I have seen all the Terminators. So there's a heck of a firefight here. Luckily, nobody hears any of the gunfire. Uh, construction. A lot to hear. Yeah, it's a long way away. Somehow, the, this works out perfectly... Where everybody gets killed, bad guys and SWAT team. Now McLean does uh, it get involved because the the uh, the brother I'll call him the brother the African American man uh, he's about to get executed. Um, McLean jumps out of the air duct just in time, saves this guy. He takes out um, he take this is this is a uh, this is classic John McLean. He basically takes out the majority of the bad guys with a pistol. While they're literally shooting dual machine guns, like one in each hand, just spraying fire. And he somehow surgically is able to go in and take every single one out. The uh, last guy he gets by turning the moving sidewalk back on so that his gun rolls back closer to him. Genius. Brilliant. Yes. Just just classic McLean. Quick uh, note there. So the SWAT team... The bad guys get the jump on them. Like, the SWAT team's not expecting it. They kill all of them. Like, I don't think the SWAT team kills one bad guy. 
They were pretty much uh, the worst SWAT team I've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> so then McLean comes in against the entire team of bad guys that's still intact and takes them all out when the SWAT team couldn't take out one. Hey, you saw it with your own eyes. <laughs> that's what happened. So in a very similar to Die Hard 1, after it's all said and done, the African-American gentleman feels like he can still go out and fix this communications area. But no, the bad guys have it wired to blow up and just blow the thing to smithereens. Again, going back to Die Hard 1, why not just do that from the get-go? Why do we need to... Why do we need to potentially kill half of our men uh, in a firefight with a SWAT team that's the ju- only reason they're there is to try to protect something that you already have rigged to blow up? Yes. Good question. That's a fair point. They cut back to the church, and this is where I got pretty <clears throat> excited because the bad guy, the main bad guy, his right-hand man looks exactly like the Miz. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In fact, I had to check and make sure The Miz wasn't old enough to be in a movie at this point, which, spoiler alert, he was eight. I oh, did not wow. pick up on that, but I can, uh, I can go back and appreciate that. This is, uh, this is where they crash the plane, right? Yeah, this yes. is when things get serious, because the bad guys are mad that their painters slash hitmen, uh, they took so much damage. And that they tried to mess with the communications, which they weren't supposed to do. Yes. So they are going to take down a plane, and they, the tower quickly realizes the way they're going to do this is they're able to reset what the plane sees as the sea level as the ground level so that they will, uh, they're going to be off by 200 feet. So they'll be coming in on a nice descent, and then, bam, they're into the ground before they know it. Since we're all aviation experts, is that real? <laughs> Can they adjust the plane's instruments from the tower? Did you see how much stuff they had set up in the church? <laughs> yeah, there were lots of blinking lights and buttons. So I'm, I'm I thinking they for sure. I bet they could have won the four-seamer with all that computer equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming Osimo wasn't in it. Yeah, well, of course. McLean's not going to let this happen, though. He repels out the window with a bunch of, I guess, sheets tied together. I don't know how those were conveniently. Maybe painter's cloths. Mm, maybe. Um, he ha- he lights to, I-, I don't know what they were, like torches? Something. Yeah. He's got fire in both hands. He's frantically waving around because this is clearly going to catch the eye of the plane. Now, the conditions are bad. Visibility is not good at this point. No. And this was quite the plane crash. I, I <laughs> thought it was very well done. Yeah, this, this plane exploded. <laughs> yes. And that, that, is a, uh, that is a note I had. So the plane hits hard. I mean, it, it does a belly flop. And despite the fact that the plane was only landing because it was completely out of fuel, <laughs> has enough fuel to explode, unlike, I mean, if the plane had been rigged with C4, I don't know that it would have blown up this big. So I think it still might be my favorite part of the whole movie. I mean, God. It's an amazing plane crash. Rest I, and the I actors. I read somewhere that in a uh, greatest movie plane crashes of all time list, it was voted number two. All right. I, I thought it was great. It was. But I also did, just thinking about all you know, the planes that they're showing, 
the one that ended up crashing, as well as the one his wife is on, they keep talking about how they're so low on fuel. There's nowhere else they could possibly land. I looked up on a map because <laughs> that was bothering me too. So are we assuming they're going to Dulles? Yeah, we're going to Dulles. It was Dulles, okay. yeah. So Reagan and Baltimore are extremely close. You going to be okay, Glenn, when he mentions the B word? <laughs> yeah, it's starting to shake a little bit. I mean, like, like you could, you could uh, glide a plane to Baltimore or Reagan. Because it seems like they're just portraying it as you know we've got 10 minutes of gas and we're yeah. just we're down to the ground we have yeah. no other option well, there's there's in no a second other here, anywhere near here yeah in a second year where they they do get communications back it's still never mentioned like it's not like hey guys you know that that other airport that's three minutes away maybe you should fly to that one well and what else what else isn't mentioned is that they're holding to land at an airport that is being besieged by horrible weather <laughs> I mean, yes. the weather was bad enough that they would have diverted planes anyways. So yeah. now it's like, no, stay here and potentially run out of gas to then land in the most unsafe possible conditions. It makes no sense. And they also have this, you know, extradited dictator. Like, you would think if anything's going wrong, they're like, all right, you know what? All these commercial planes, you're going to have to get out of the way. we got to take yeah. care of this. The dictator that's still three hours away, you could send him to LaGuardia. You could see, I mean, there's all kinds of places along the East Coast you could send him. Also, and I believe this is about the point in the movie where we go back to Dictator's Plane. Yeah, we need to talk about this, yeah. Obviously, when you're transporting a high-profile prisoner, you have the two pilots and one other person (laughs) on the plane. I think it started just an hour before the guy that Glenn's fence is being (laughs) built by. Yeah, he was about 19 years old. So, Dictator easily kills him. Yeah, I mean, then, he started with the, uh, hey, do you mind if I have a smoke? And as soon as he said that, I was like, well, we know this guy's dead. <laughs> and then... Is, we know where this is headed. Kills both the pilots, because he can fly a huge military jet. No well, it problem. turns out he's quite serviceable in the, in the uh, pilot's chair. I think he's he very good. immediately regretted that decision, though, because the second shot pierced the... The glass, and then he's the fuselage he's, has been pierced. Yes, he's uh, radioing into the into the tower that the the it's no longer pressurized in there, and the visibility is low, and it shows a viewpoint, and basically, he's just the windshield in this thing is just busted out, and you can see there was no visibility. It's just a sheet of snow. <laughs> There's no way he could breathe, much less <laughs> fly the plane. So a couple other very important things in the plot happen at this same juncture in the movie. One is, on McLean's wife's plane, the reporter and his, I guess, producer, they have a radio that they can listen to the cockpit uh, in because everybody has those. That's, that's fine. Yeah, it didn't explain the, that. He just he just had it. Yeah, he just had it. The uh, other, um, even more exciting to me, is that the, the military is now on site. And, of course, the leader of the military <sighs> is the former battalion leader of Colonel Stewart before he left the military to start McDowell's. <laughs> yes. 
I was so fired up when I saw Mr. McDowell, when I saw Cleo. So great. And he is so he's so confident and arrogant in this movie. Just fantastic. Cleo, Mc, Cleo McDowell is, uh, is on the case. So the, uh, I know, hold on, I know we've talked about, we have a, a rotation of you know other movies we've thought about doing. I'm going to throw this out there. What if we scrap all that and we just watch every movie that Cleo McDowell has been in? <laughs> Even if it's like a bit part, we just watch all of them. <laughs> I think he was, have you seen Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler? No. He's in that. He's his neighbor. But he's in the movie for like, I think it's like five seconds. I bet it's a great five seconds. <laughs> it's a great movie. The uh, the African American gentleman who has survived the SWAT team shootout has figured out a way to warn the planes yes. of what's going on, and our intrepid reporter who is now auditing the cockpit voice recorder hears as well that there are there are some big tr- big troubles down on the ground. I guess they were using Morse code. Is that what we're going with here? No, they they overpowered like there's like a beacon that transmits that they were able to it was still using voice. They just had to Okay. adjust it. Yeah. The general um has now let it be known to the new control tower located at the church that uh he's not gonna be able to do the normal landing approach. He needs the closest runway possible. He's not gonna be able to turn it around. The the uh the cold air started to bother him a little bit coming in through the huge hole in the windshield. <laughs> so they are going to light up runway 25R for him. Yes. He's going to be doing a visual-only landing. There will be no instruments as the plane is in some state of disrepair. Did any of you want at some point... Uh, was Colonel Stewart's the bad guy? At some point, like... As he's approaching, he like frantically turns around to the Miz and it's like, "Hey, did you change the uh, sea level back? <laughs> you guys set that back to what it should be." <laughs> so at this point in my notes, I put something that's going to be a joke for three of us. I said, "The next five minutes in aviation history is the most preposterous thing since the Waffle House story." <laughs> <laughs> Of 40,000 feet. <laughs> yeah, and the scrambling. He's in, he, he's in the plane. He can see the runway. And then he says, I'm going to be on the ground in five minutes when he's literally 15 seconds away from touching the ground. Yeah, there's no way this happens. No way he lands that successfully, but that's, but that's all right. Because we have, mean, <clears throat> meanwhile, we've got Cleo McDowell and the group headed out to uh, take down the well, bad guys because he knows yeah, everything one, about them. Yeah, there's one more thing that does take place on this original landing. Um, McLean's, with the help of uh, Marvin, has somehow gotten onto a grate on the runway as the plane's landing. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> he. Uh, He's the only one out there, so he's able to... He Well, first of all, he takes him painstakingly long to get out from under the grade. He barely misses getting clipped by the plane. He essentially gets a free shot uh, at the general without anybody there, and 
here come the bad guys rolling up, and they are shooting like crazy. Not even worried about hitting the general, who this whole plan was put together. He's standing in the door of the plane, and they are just unloading on the plane. I feel like there's some continuity issues there. Yes. Um, McLean gets trapped in the cockpit. He avoids conservatively 90 consecutive seconds of machine gun fire into the cockpit. All you got to do is just lay down. Everybody always shoots high. Let's put a pin in this because these guys shoot through. I mean, their bullets are winging through seats and, you know, metal cases in the cockpit. He somehow survives, but by the skin of his teeth. They also forgot to adjust the the timer on their grenades down from yes. like a minute and a half. Oh, but even yes, even before the grenades that, with the five minute timer on, them, okay, which is strange. But even before that, these guys have I don't know three grenades apiece. They have a hundred percent accuracy rate <laughs> throwing them. Probably 30 feet into the air, into a window that's probably, I don't know, five feet wide. Like, these These guys guys would dominate every carnival game that's ever been invented. (laughs) Yeah, but it was really weird. You know, we just mentioned the timers, but, like, the first one comes in, and you're like, okay. And then they're still throwing them in for 12 more seconds. And then there's like a whole second wave, and you're like, "Why isn't the first one blown up yet?" Like, <laughs> no, it's oh a great gosh. point. So but- the plane has time with live grenades laying in there to get in the captain's chair, buckle the seat belts, and then activate the eject button. <laughs> What'd you guys think about this part? Well, I mean, I had my lighter out if that's where you're at. Okay, because this was, I remember when this came out and they showed the trailer, they that they showed this part as one of the you know little one two second flashes of the movie was him flying up into the sky towards the camera in the ejection seat, which had a parachute because after he uh, fired out of there, I was I couldn't remember everything about this movie, and I'm like. Don't tell me he just falls to the ground and just gets back up. But no, he had a parachute, which I guess took him out of range from their militaristic weaponry that they were all holding. Or they were just out of ammunition, one of the two. Because they just kind of look at him and they're like, we can't shoot that far. I mean, he's flying away from us. Um, There is a, uh, a quick cut back to the plane. McLean's wife's reading a Nakatomi booklet, so apparently the company survived the siege. They're still they're still doing well. They're still in business, and uh, the the passengers are getting nervous. So the captain has the brilliant idea of like, "Hey, let's put on local TV for them to watch." And they're showing The Simpsons. Can you believe that? This movie feels like it was made in a different time, and The Simpsons is still on TV That's today. True. Did we ever get? A uh, sense on was she still in the same position or did she get promoted? Because there was an opening higher up the corporate ladder after the Christmas party. I wonder, if, I wonder if like what the appropriate amount of time to wait before you put the resume in. <laughs> like, no, I was there. Christmas? He said this is what he wanted. <laughs> it's the last thing he said before he told us the code. 
Um, the uh, our our guy and like I I'm I've, I'm really upset I didn't write down his name, but the the African American guy in the tower, he's figured out where he thinks the bad guys are, at least the location where they could be, and, and he and McLean are gonna go are gonna go scope it out. Marvin. No, 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 Marvin's the janitor. Yeah, Marvin's oh, the janitor. Oh, yeah, you're and right. And by the way, Sorry. that is highly racist that you think his name is Marvin. I just <laughs> or, want to say that. Or that, that Tommy pointed out that uh, he's African-American. You said, oh, the janitor. <laughs> his name is Leslie Barnes in the movie. Leslie, the airport okay. chief engineer. Okay, let's... Good, good old Leslie. Yeah, chief um, engineer. And they... they essentially say they check every house then he says hey there's a church they immediately can tell by the way the guards are positioned at the church he tells uh, McLean um, calls uh, Cleo McDowell and says hey you guys got to get here now luckily even though we weren't sure the snowstorm was coming in Cleo's entire crew is outfitted in full snow tack gear white gear I mean amazing coincidence that they were this prepared they were ready. During the uh, struggle with the guard, McLean stabs a guy in the eye with an icicle. Ugh. It's kind of gnarly. When the rest of the crew shows up, Lorenzo's there. He can't help himself but to criticize McLean, but now Cleo's sticking up for McLean and's like, hey, this is my kind of guy. So I'm like, all right, this is going to be good, man. We're gonna get this going. We're gonna get we're gonna get McLean, Cleo, we're gonna get this thing cleaned out. And boy, um there's a heck of a firefight that breaks yeah. out. They now start a world war essentially yes. at this tiny little church. Now what's funny is I'm writing these notes in real time. And all these notes I take actually end up being very accurate, but there's a reason why. Yes. Because my first note is how does the special forces not have the building surrounded? My second note is, how do they have snowmobiles when it wasn't even (laughs) snowing earlier in the day? (laughs) But the bad guys have a full complement of snowmobiles for everybody outside the back of this church on a day they weren't even sure it was going to snow. They stole them from Mount Carmel. (laughs) And are snowmobiles very popular in Washington, D.C.? I mean, it's not like they're in Canada. I'm going to say no. I'm also going to say they went on a huge snowmobile ch- chase and gunfight on the thinnest ice that's ever been <laughs> chased upon in human history. Because everybody who yes. j- jumps over the little snow jump onto the, the lake, there's a clear, like, big splash as they hit the Like, this is how nobody went through. I have no idea. Yeah. So the uh, entire special forces... Uh, go inside the the building because everybody's cleared out the back and they realize that everything's been booby-trapped to blow. Mm-hmm. Now, in a minute, we're going to find out this seems to be a very odd plot point because, guys, I don't know if I'm breaking news to you or not, but there's a heel turn coming. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, boy, there is. Bigly. Yes. Um and then, and then again, this is another thing that I was just perplexed by at the time, but then makes sense. When McLean's on the snowmobile, he's basically riding directly into machine gun fire for like <laughs> yes. 30 seconds. Doesn't no, take any damage. That's the note I wanted to put. So they basically tear through the cockpit of a military aircraft with these guns, and snowmobiles completely indestructible. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, I he mean, drives directly into their fire for a minute. Yeah, and nothing happens. He makes a crazy jump over an 18-wheeler, and then the snowmobile just explodes in the air for no reason. <laughs> and the bad guys think he's dead. Mm-hmm. But he's not. But but you do notice during the course of that gunfight that Colonel Stewart, uh, you know, they're all firing at him. But when he turns to fire at him, he has his automatic weapon, and there's a, I guess, a clip in it or whatever, and he takes it out, and it's nothing's on it. It's just the, it's black. He gets yeah. another one that's the same size, but it's got like a piece of red tape wrapped around it, so he knows there's a differentiation between one and the other, and that's the one he puts in to shoot at him, which you don't. Watching it a second, third, tenth time, whatever I have, I know why he makes the switch. At the time, you have no idea. You just wouldn't even yeah. think about it. That's true. Yeah. Um, so the uh, <clears throat> there's a quick cutaway. The, uh, the news station in D.C. has now gotten the recording uh, of what was said it, to, the, to the plane. So the reporters leaked that to the news. And of course, you know what's coming. That's going to get played on the plane. Bring yeah, he's, the Simpsons. he's in the bathroom doing a live broadcast. Yes. Not a not not what you want to see. Um, the SWAT team, or no, I'm sorry, not the SWAT team. The Special Forces team is riding <laughs> over to the uh, airport, and boy, this one. Got, I mean, this was like when Hogan, <laughs> when Hogan uh, went this NWO. Bash at the beach. <laughs> so there's one guy that had had earlier in this in the movie had had said that he had just joined the team that week and. He, they're talking, and he says something about, you know, oh, I wish I was with you guys on this mission back in the year. And Cleo's like, I wish you were too, because then I wouldn't have to do this. Pulls out a knife and slits the guy's throat. And I'm just, I'm pacing the living room at this point. <laughs> I mean, my whole world has been rocked. Cleo is in cahoots with the bad guys. Yes. But then it all starts to make sense. <clears throat> They were shooting blanks at John McClane. Yes. Because they have to make it look good, but they're in cahoots. On the on the plane that hit McClane's wife's on, pandemonium's breaking out because of the broadcast. She figures out that he's in the bathroom recording live. She kicks in the door, and with the help of her uh, neighboring passenger who had a taser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on the plane. On the plane. It's pretty- but she already showed and fired... <laughs> Yeah, pre nine eleven, she uh, she gives the uh, the reporter a good zap and knocks him off the air. And that's what Restraining led order be damned. the people in the airport to be panicking was that message that there was terrorists had taken over. There had obviously been a plane crash. I assume someone in the airports noticed that. Did you feel like that? I, I'm glad you brought that up. Did you feel like that that epic plane crash gets zero pub? Like they don't need like. <clears throat> People in the airport had to know there was a plane crash. They well, don't ever talk about it. They're not even closing the airport. It's just like, hey, let's not just only, keep things rolling here. Not only the people in the airport, but you got 25 planes circling who can see that. When they see that, they're like, you know what? We're not landing here. <laughs> like Fred Thompson's like, Dad gum pal, just land around it. <laughs> Oh, so Cleo shows up at the hangar with the general, and they're ready to go. They've got they've got a brand new plane. 
Uh, everybody's everybody's high fiving. They've unfurled the mission accomplished banner. They're getting that taped up on the wall. Um, the general kind of has an ominous little bit of foreshadowing. He's like, "Hey, let's just uh, let's just get the plane in the air before we all start slapping each other on the backs here." Uh, and meanwhile, McLean has convinced the female reporter who apparently just hangs around the airport all day, <laughs> but failed to realize there was a plane crash. <laughs> To uh, let him use uh, the chopper, the news chopper, which apparently also, if you're a news chopper, you can just fly into the restricted airspace of an airport <laughs> and just land your chopper right on the runway, and that's fine. <laughs> that is okay. There's no problem there. <laughs> but he convinces the, uh, the, the news chopper to get in the air, and, and his first plan is to have the chopper land and block the plane and the pilot. He's not having any of that. He's like, hey, man. Uh, I take risks, but I'm not playing chicken with a 747 or whatever it is. So then McLean's like, hey, look, can you just fly me over the wing? That's all I need. Because that seems way safer. Yeah. So at, the, at this time, the 747's already starting to, to get up to speed to take off. I mean, they're they're on the runway. They're moving. And we got the... Uh, um, we got uh, General Esperanza behind the... Behind yeah. the wheel again. He's, in the, he's at the stick. And, uh, and McLean jumps out of the helicopter and lands on the wing of the plane. And uh, somehow nobody on the plane notices that there's a helicopter hovering over the <laughs> wing of the plane. <laughs> nobody bothers to like get that message up to the cockpit. Um, he, uh, McLean manages to stuff like one of those big yellow uh, you know, safety jackets... Uh, into the flap of the plane so that I, I guess they can't maneuver the wings so they can take off because the uh, Esperanza immediately realizes they're not going anywhere with, with this setup. Yeah, the guy who just landed a plane with a hole in the cockpit, now the flap is up an inch and he's like, ah, can't do anything. <laughs> he's like, dad gum, pal, we're out of luck here. He, uh... He sends um, a couple of the bad guys, including Colonel Stewart, who uh, they open the door. They come out on the wing to confront McLean. Um, now he's doing Tai Chi again. He's got clothes on this time, though, so there is yes. a little bit of a difference. But that does come in handy in this plane fight. Unfortunately for him, uh, he comes out on the bad end of this, and he meets the most, uh, most unfortunate of demises. Who Cleo he sucked into the plane engine? Yeah, that's uh, that's a little messy. It's a hard way to go. Yeah. So can we take a quick pause here? Because I have a question about this, and then I'll tell you how this she this scene should have been. One. So after Colonel Stewart meets his end, Cleo Major Grant comes out. So they have a plane full of these soldiers and like the two leaders are the <laughs> ones that are going to go out on the wing and try to fight McLean. Like, don't you like, hey, kid, you get out there. But the scene I wanted so bad and stick with me here, because remember, General Esperanza was like ran a country. He was a dictator, right? So stick with me here. Didn't you want a scene at some point, right, where McLean 
and Cleo are there. And McLean obviously realizes now that Cleo's bad. And he says, you're helping General Esperanza. You know, why are you doing this? And Cleo reaches into his bag and says, he's got his own money. (laughs) And pulls out some bills with his picture on it. It's like, and I mean, he's got his own money. (laughs) Zamunda and Valverde. Two of the most powerful countries you can deal with. What if that the, was just uh, a, a staple for every movie that Cleo McDowell's in? They have, they have to work that in. The other, oh, man. the other villain is actually successful in getting McLean tossed off the plane. But not before. But big, big butt here. McLean grabs the fuel dump plug, switch, whatever it is. So as he hits the ground, there's just a trail of jet fuel coming out of the wing of the plane. And a yeah, giant stream, which the, he then falls off the plane and just kind of, he rolls a couple times. It's been snowing. Probably made yeah. it a, a nice soft landing. And then we get the moment. Yes, <laughs> the seminal moment of this movie McLean lights the fuel trail on fire and as the flames are chasing down the runway reaches the plane it explodes epically killing everyone on board McLean issues the line yippee kaye mother (laughs) and then just rolls around on the ground laughing maniacally while all this death and devastation is happening around him. Perfect. The thing we haven't talked about yet is this is a 15-minute scene. (laughs) The entire time this scene is going on, the plane is under some degree of heavy acceleration. They're just... They're using, like, 35 north in the Midwest as the runway. Yeah, if this if this started in downtown Dallas, they would have been north of Denton there by the time this plane this ends. Well, it's not even so. If that's not preposterous enough, the trail of lit jet fuel that's now burning is going to serve as the runway lights. So now they're going to start landing commercial airliners at the very end, uh, allegedly of this sixty-mile runway that they've been down. They're not even going to start attempting to land until they're at the very end of it. And now here comes all the planes in just fast succession, landing in the snow. And they're using the carnage of a wrecked airplane as their guide. They're not worried about, like, blowing a tire on that or anything. They even also... Go ahead. I was going to say, also, every plane, like, the first plane lands... And they just put it in park on the runway. They're way so, like, too plane close has to, to each other. to just take a little bit shorter to stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's too many. They're way too close to each other. They even go to the, the point of over-explaining the fact that the explosion and fire from the, the other plane will serve as the light. Like somebody yes. literally yells it out. Hey, we can use yeah. that to light for the other planes. <laughs> Well, they they show a few planes landing. They pop the emergency slides. Bruce, or I'm sorry, McLean's reunited with his wife. Everybody's happy. They never go back and talk about the 300 plus dead in the commercial plane crash. 
they're slapping each other on the back and high-fiving and everything's great. And they are mere feet away from probably the most catastrophic U.S. domestic or the domestic plane crash that's ever happened. And then you've got Chief Lorenzo out there tearing up the parking ticket and we're just, everybody's just yucking it up and having a good time. Yeah, it's like uh, they're making a big deal of the fire from the bad guy's plane being a, a light for the runway. It's like, how about the 200 people that are still on fire in the other plane <laughs> crash? Can we use that runway? Oh. All right, so but overall, final closing thoughts. thoughts. Closing thoughts. I, I rank this above Die Hard 1. And that's, that is not... Not typical when you when you have a sequel that you run into that you're going to rank higher than the original, but I'm doing it. I am going to agree with Tommy and basically everything I criticized in Die Hard One. I feel like was better in this one because my complaint with Die Hard One was there was no real twists and turns. Like you know they made the big deal about the different locking mechanisms, but that was basically an afterthought. Here, like, you know, the whole movie was, okay, the bad guys took over communication with the planes, you know, we're trying these different ways to get it back, Uh, you know, you have different, you know, obviously Cleo, you think is a good guy, and then he turns bad. There was a lot more, I guess, plot and intrigue along the way. I still like the first one better, and most of the populace and, and critics would agree with me on that, but... (laughs) <laughs> I think the intrigue or attraction with this one, just comparing these two movies, is it's kind of like the Rocky movies, if you happen to have seen any of those. So, like, the first one is <laughs> two-plus hours long. you got to intro the character. we got to find out who this guy is. we got to do this, that, or the other. The second one's kind of like that, too. People love Rocky Three and Rocky Four. Do you know why? Because they show the the title on the screen, and then people are fighting immediately. (laughs) And we're not developing who these people are. We don't care. We're just killing people randomly. It doesn't make sense. But you just get right to it. And that's what this movie did. It's still clocked in, I think, almost at two hours. But I think it was a little shorter than the first one, if I remember correctly. But they didn't waste any time at all. I I like... just remembering it, and again, we just watched the first one. I haven't seen this one. I li- can't remember when. Um, even the next one, it's probably been a good 15 or 20 years since I've watched it beginning to end. I remember this one as being, out of the first four, the lowest rated one. But I don't know if I'd, I'll think the same way now a second time through. I don't know. I still like the first one better than this one, but this one was better than I remembered. So are we committed to seeing this through to Die Hard 3? Oh, I think so. It's on HBO Max, and I'm probably overselling it, but buckle up for the Bruce Willis, <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson show. This is going to be... It's, it's a wild ride. Yeah.